On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, should Julie Payette lose her Order of Canada? It's an interesting question. There have been some people who have lost their Orders of Canada, but usually for much worse than what she did, even though nobody's defending necessarily her work as Governor General. But should one of the top honours in the country be stripped away from her? We're going to discuss it. Why are Canada's women doing so much better in the Olympics than the men right now? We're going to talk about that as well. See if there's a theory that holds any water. And the real estate market in this country, you might be surprised by some new reports and some new numbers about where we're going and what direction we're heading. Maybe not quite what you expect. Stick around to find out what that means. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson to wrap this week and launch us into the gloriousness that is a summer-long weekend. There's just, there's, that's right. Thank you, live studio audience. There is nothing better than a summer-long weekend, and we are on the precipice of that. First up today, though, I want to... Um, I want to talk about Julie Payette. You know who I'm talking about, the former governor general. Um, Not that long ago. Now, it's hard because of what happened in her stint as governor general. Not exactly a a glorious uh, era in governor generalship in this country. So it's kind of hard sometimes to forget that not that long ago, Julie Payette was seen as something of a national hero. She was an astronaut. She was a, a trailblazing woman. She was a celebrity governor general when she was installed and all this kind of stuff. She was one of the very best of us. That's how she was, I think, seen by many, many people in this country. Probably most people in this country saw her as that. Well, then, as I say, came her time as governor general and it was not great. Let's be honest. It was not great. And she eventually was pushed out and she left and there were reports that she had operated a, operated a toxic workplace environment at Rideau Hall and blah, blah, blah. And so, I mean, her name, I don't want to say her name became mud. That may be too strong, but her name was certainly, her reputation was certainly affected. Well, now there are reports that the advisory committee for the Order of Canada may try to take that honor away from her. She was a member of the Order of Canada. They may try to remove that medal from her chest. Is this a good idea? I want to bring in Tim Powers. He's chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Tim, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Scott, it's easy to do when the, the, the other host is Scott, too. So I can't screw up that much, at least on the first name. So I'll try and get That's the right. line, too. That's right. Tim, is this a good idea to start removing honors from people for behaviors? Uh, well, there is, there, there is a, excuse me, Scott, there is a precedent to remove honors if there have been a criminal action or um, disrepute, however one may de- choose to define that, has been brought to the the order itself. I think this is a tougher one, though, because as you well set it out, she got her Order of Canada for what she did as an astronaut. Uh, that was separate and apart from her time and tenure as Governor General. She's been publicly shamed. She lost her job, uh, stepped down as, as Governor General. She's suffered a lot. Um, she's gone through public humiliation. I'm not sure you need to, you know, go further and remove an award that was unrelated to her governor general's term from her. It it really, to me anyway, it really does seem like piling on. Here's someone who's down. Here's someone that we're not real happy with right now because of what happened. So let's boot her a few more times while she's on the ground. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about that. Look, and I'm no Julia Payette fan. I think she was a poor appointee, uh, wasn't ready for the job, and didn't perform well. But hey, uh, uh, any of all of us make mistakes and different sorts of mistakes. And this that award had nothing to do with her time as governor general. And we live in this moment too of where we want to met out instant justice, but is it just mm. a stripper of the award? And I, I, I don't think it is. This isn't Conrad Black, who had his award stripped from him, who was formerly convicted of, uh, of, of, of a crime. Um, you know, the, the, this is an opinion call, and part of 
the judgment I think the people who will look at this need to bring to this is, what are we trying to say about ourselves as uh, as Canadians, and what are we trying to say about this award as well, too? Because if somebody suddenly does something that's publicly embarrassing, and lots of us do from time to time, the degree may differ, uh, do, do you, you lose the recognition that has nothing to do with whatever your behavior may have been? I mean, you mentioned Conrad Black. Um, Garth Drabinsky was another one who lost his yep. order of Canada. Steve Fonio, that some will remember, followed yep. Terry Fox and ran across the country. But m- I believe, Tim, that all of the people, and I think there's like six or seven who have had their order of there's, Canada yeah, stripped away. You're right, Sky. Yep. I, I, I believe all of them were in the wake of criminal or some sort of conviction in a court of law where there was a, a, a crime committed or something more than just public scorn. This would seem to lower the bar for removing it considerably. You're likely right. I I, I mean, look, I suppose those who are in favor of removing the order from her would say you can't give countenance to uh, harassment. Uh, That is what she is uh, was alleged to have done, harassed and bullied people and reports suggest that there was behavior like that that was at play, but they, you know, they weren't. There's nothing to justify that. Uh, but the the reporting was an independent third party investigator. Again, no criminal charges. We live in a time, rightly, where we're speaking out about bullying, harassment, uh, the manipulation, and and poor behavior that uh, many leaders have displayed towards uh, people. Um, but yeah, I, I still think it's too far to take it take it from her maybe the discussion is is enough but but again she was a poorly chosen appointee so do you mm. count that as well she was put in a position which she arguably did not have the skill set to fulfill so doesn't some responsibility in this discussion rest with those who appointed her and their judgment but you're not going to be uh, meting out penalties to them because uh, they're not part of this discourse Interesting. See, and, and I want to be clear, like you, I'm not rising to the defense of Julie Payette as a great governor general by any stretch. But, uh, you know, if we start doing this, it, it just seems to me, okay, are we going to then have a committee that's going to start vetting all the other orders of Canada owners and seeing if there are things in their background that like, again, you start, you start walking to, to me, you start walking down a dangerous path here because you're exactly right, Tim, that we all have done things in our past that we wish, I think that we all wish we could undo or not have done. We've all got regrets that of, of mistakes and errors of different degrees. I'm positive that if you were to start purging through the entire list of people who have an order of Canada, Julie Payette is not the only one that you would look at and say, ooh, that's not nice. Yeah, I agree. And, and it, 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 again, it's who draws the line and why should, you know, what makes her, I, I think, you know, what, what makes the people on the advisory committee particularly qualified to make this decision to it, it just raises more questions than it, uh, than it answers. And again, if the award was for something unrelated to her performance as governor general. She was a terrible governor general, but does that mean she shouldn't be an order of Canada recipient for the pioneering stuff she did as an astronaut? You know, yeah, I, I get why schools may want to take change the name of schools and, and things like that. But, you know, this award long, well, not long, but it certainly predated her time as, as governor general. And, for years uh, before um, the, uh, the 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 governor general, her governor general, the behavior she exhibited, excuse me, as governor general, uh, was brought to light. We were celebrating her space achievements. There's no less reason to celebrate what she was able to achieve as an astronaut. I think there's more scrutiny to be brought up, up upon her about her behaviors and positions of authority, but. To the best of my knowledge, Scott, I've never heard anything related to her time as an astronaut. It's been, it was after the fact that stories started to emerge about uh, some of the challenges mm-hmm. uh, she has and the, the behavior she's uh, she's brought towards other people. 
I hadn't thought of this till you mentioned the the fact that you know she didn't choose this job. She was asked to do this job and was appointed by other people. And so maybe you know what about them? You know, it's an interesting question. I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe every prime minister, at least in the modern era, has received the Order of Canada after their time in office. But if if this is our new standard, based on blackface and groping allegations. Yeah. What, what do we do then with Justin Trudeau? If we're, if we're going to have this kind of standard, would he be a prime minister who can't get it? Potentially. Um, you know, I, I, none of, I go back to this, none of us have un, unblemished records. And I, I, exactly. I, the interesting part of all of this, too, is it's the government who appointed her is also the government that is putting these people on the advisory committee. So that seems a bit unfair as well, too. I mean, that's just the way the process can work. But so they kind of can wash their hands of it and say, you guys go figure it out, even though we put her in this place and now we're asking you to judge her. I don't know if there's some inherent conflict around all of that, uh, given, as I say, the role they played in the appointment. Um, or, again, if this is just playing to... to, to uh, uh, a bit of a, a an audience that wants more punishment on Julie Payette, but but honestly, I thought we were largely past that. Certainly, the government wanted to be largely past that with the appointment of Mary Simon uh, on the surface um, and beneath the surface, an extremely good choice. They got lots of rightful good press about that. I'm not sure why anybody wants to bring this back. It's not going to change the way Julie Payette behaved in in Rideau Hall. It's not going to make the lives better of the people that uh, were subject to her behavior. Um, I, I don't know who wins with this, who feels better, and what societal good uh, is developed or enhanced because of um, her potential removal as an Order of Canada recipient. Tim, I, I mean, I really believe that it's healthy for a society to honor people who have done great things. I, I, I think it's inspiring. I think it's a good thing to have heroes and to, to look at people who have stepped way beyond the average person and done amazing things. But it seems lately anyway that it, it's become far more complicated and fraught with peril to do these kind of things because we go back to that point. We've all got things. We've all got stuff. And it's become way more difficult to just have heroes. Uh, well, as uh, as I think my mother used to say to me, we you know uh, we're all kind of made of clay. <laughs> we're not <laughs> granite, uh, and heroes have clay too, uh, metaphorically in the way they're they're laid out. And in, in in this day and age, yeah, one flaw becomes a fatal flaw, uh, and, and not that there just was one flaw with Julie Payette, but again, it's, it's it seems we're not satisfied unless we have. Garroted, or as you said, jump on top of them and 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 slug them to death, uh, people for their misdeeds, um, you know. And there's lots of examples out there that we could have a long discussion about how people in the military who um, allow certain behaviors uh, to. Uh, to continue will be treated and should be treated and are being treated. I mean, this instant judge and jury stuff is really dangerous, Scott, and that's a curse of social media, I think. I, I would I would absolutely echo that. And, you know, I, I spent, and we got to let you go, but I spent some time a number of years ago um, doing a piece. I had tracked down Steve Fonio. He was living out in BC yeah. at the time and was, and, you know, there's a guy who very clearly had life problems after running across the country and raising millions and millions of dollars for charity, for cancer and everything else. And you know what? When things started to unravel for him, it didn't seem like anyone came to his defense. They just piled on. And I look at this and I go, you know, somehow in our society, we have to, I think, have a, a little more compassion and, and and to what you say, not look at a flaw or a mistake or a thing. We can disavow it. We can dislike it. We can be critical of it. But I don't know that we have to eviscerate people because of that one mistake. Uh, just a thought. Yeah, I, I just think it's the wrong thing to do. I think, you know, we're, we're living a lot in this, this moment, uh, whether you like Stephen Harper or not. You heard his comments the other day about woke culture and there's a whole left right divide around all of this. Look. Uh, there's lots of things we can all do better, but one of the things we most certainly must work on as we look to do better, Scott, is determining how to judge people properly and fairly as opposed to instantly and conveniently when people want that judgment meted out. 
Brilliantly said. Tim Powers, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Take care, Scott. Have a good weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I can tell you where we're going in the Olympics. Uh, If you're talking about women's sports, we're going up. If you're talking about men's sports, not so much. So far, this has been, again, because it happened in Rio, this has been the Olympics of Canada's women. First 11 medals that Canada has won have all been from female athletes. Last time in Rio, it was the first 12. Now, there are theories about why this is happening. If you go on social media, the theory is girls rule, boys drool. I mean, that's it, it's kind of unfortunate, but social media, as social media does, rather than celebrating the fact that Canada is doing well in these Olympics and rather than just celebrating that Canadians are winning, a lot of social media has turned into, oh, look, our women are amazing, our men suck. Eh, you know, childish unfortunate because I I like to believe that if 11 men had won medals and no women had won medals, that we would be equally excited because 11 Canadians had won medals. I I will get to that later in this discussion because I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure how things would be playing if people were sending out tweets on social media from our national broadcaster and others going, Hey, look, amazing. 11 men have won, no women. I, I, I don't think they would even send those tweets, quite honestly, but we'll get to that later in the show. But why are our women doing so well? What is the secret ingredient that is making our women so successful at these games? Paula Schnur uh, knows something about being an Olympian. She's now the head track and cross-country coach at McMaster University, but she twice competed wearing the Maple Leaf for Canada at the Olympics. She was at the 1992 Olympics in Spain and Barcelona. She was at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Don't know if she had a front row seat the night that Donovan Bailey was running or if she was preparing for her own event, but nonetheless, Paula Schnur joins us now. Paula, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Did you have a front row seat for Donovan Bailey's race that night? You know what? I don't have great memories of uh, 25 years ago. Uh, (laughs) That wasn't my best Olympics, but I do remember, yes, I do remember being there and seeing that that wonderful race that Donovan had and, yeah, making us all proud. So, well, let's get into this because... Well, nothing, there's no, there isn't anything like winning gold. And that's why I say, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the fact that Canadians are winning is tremendous, but it's, it's, it's inevitable that we're going to start breaking it down and start looking into this because it's a pretty obvious disparity right now. 11 women, uh, medal, 11 medals for women, zero for men. What's your theory? What's, what's the reason why our women are doing so well and our men are not? Um, you know, I don't. I'm not I'm not interested in having that conversation about women doing well and men not doing well. I'd like to celebrate the fact that we have some world-class women in Canada that have been able to perform when it counts. That's that's where I'm at. You know, we can talk and and analyze and and compare and you know, try to come up with all these reasons, but you know, at some point Talent's talent. And when you get to the Olympics and everyone has prepared themselves, um, you know, to pretty much the same level, and you're looking at the starting line and, you know, who's got it on that day. And, and clearly this past week, our women, our Canadian Canadians, have had it on the day. And, and that's what we should be celebrating, and I totally agree. I'm hoping for the day where we don't have to have this conversation about why the women are excelling and the men aren't and vice versa. And, and while I agree with you, as I say, the discussion is everywhere about this. And so let's, you know, gently then dive into this just a little bit because there, there, there has to be something, or is it honestly, is it just a fluke of timing or, you know, is it a, is it a colossal fluke right now that, you know, if something had just bounced the other way, that this might be looking different or, or is there something that'll, that, um, that is behind these results? Well, I mean, I think, you know, this isn't 
a one year, you know, what was last year, two years. This has been, um, you know, a slow, unfortunately, process of where we're, we're allowing women to have opportunities that men have had all the time and have taken for granted. You know, we, we can talk about, um, you know, more ice time, more field time, um, women staying in sport longer because, you know, it's okay to, to look at having a career in sport. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, this is, is this is what's happening. Um, is it every four years? I, you know, I hope that, you know, we can continue to have the same kind of success year after year. But I also look at, you know, the role models that have come before, um, before Tokyo, you know, uh, women are looking at, um, you know, the role models of the past who are still competing in these Olympics and, you know, taking advantage of those role models. But if those role models aren't um, performing to the best of their ability, because they're, you know, there's no question as you get older, it, it gets a bit harder. The younger ones are stepping up. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. You know, you look at the soccer and the swimmers and, um, you know, the rugby. Um, it's, it's, it's like it's a cascading effect. You know, the, the role models that we have in this country, and we do. I mean, you can you can go down the list of. I mean, you're one for I'm sure many many runners because of you know of what you did. It as you say, 25 years ago, and you know Christine Sinclair in soccer, or Clara Hughes in cycling and skating, or on and on and on. Penny Alexiak now. Um, I'm sure there's some six and eight and ten year old girls who are watching swimming now and deciding they are going to take it up because they want to be Penny Alexiak. As much as that's important, and I really do agree with you that it is, we also in this country, much more than in a lot of other parts in the world, support and fund and encourage women's sports. It, it is, that's one of the theories that, the, um, that, uh, that, that when you have so many other places in the world that don't do anything for women's sports, that we are at a huge advantage. Is, is that a good theory? I mean, it's it's a reasonable theory, but I think we still have a long way to go. I mean, you know, I I I only really know uh, at the varsity level, at, um, you know, coaching at MAC, and and certainly there's been more opportunities. There's been maybe a bit more money heading in the women's direction, but I mean, we still are not on par with with the men. I still think we have a long way to go. So, y- yes, it's probably helped, but um, I think we can do a better job. There is another theory, and I wrote written a bunch of these in the spec today and on the spec.com. People can go look it up for a you know for this and and make up their own mind. But there's another theory out there that says many boys, not all obviously, but many boys get streamed into the most popular or most visible sports in our culture, which are you know hockey, basketball, football, soccer, baseball, and they don't necessarily find their way into the sports that are in the Olympics and those same opportunities to maybe look down for a pro career or something in those sports don't exist for women. So more of our top pure natural female athletes find their way into Olympic style sports. What do you think about that idea? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, do kids do young women start, you know, sure. They might have that goal as an eight, 10 year old. I want to, you know, eventually get to the Olympics, but I think, you know their their athletic path can take them can take them anywhere and 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 we're seeing that you know with hockey and basketball baseball um soccer these and now in golf these are all part of the olympic um you know um so they're they're part of the olympics and and so there is opportunity for people to do that and we see you know athletes leaving um football and becoming olympic athletes and you know the crossover um into the olympic world and so um it, it might be the case but i think it's hard to tell <laughs> i i just don't think people people pick a sport because it's going to go to the olympics or it's going to you know support them 
And yeah, well, all, I mean, and women, and we are, and and you you can see that you know compared to when I was competing, you can support, you have better opportunities to support yourself as an Olympic athlete. What is um, the difference, Paula? There's what more is the difference? For- there's there's more money going in at the you know at our government level. There's more sponsorship. Um, you know, if, but from a personal if, level, when you were competing 25 years ago, what was the support that you, do you remember what you got from the government back then to support you as you were preparing? Um, well, I know I had to still have a, you know, some kind of a job. I mean, if I was to completely stop working, I would have a hard time supporting myself. I know I could probably reach out to my family, but uh, for me, I was, you know, I was a part-time teacher. I was training I got, I think, one year, a couple years, I might have got $500, $750 a month as a carded athlete. Um, I mean, there's so much has changed also, not in terms of money, but the support. Even even athletes at the Ontario level who are selected to represent Ontario, in particularly my sport of track and field, you know, they've got support for training camps they've got support for massage therapists they've got support for dietitians so there's more support happening at the grassroots level which of course is going to help someone stay healthy and want to stay in their sport so so that those are the kinds of changes that that I've seen um, as a coach whereas back 25 years ago I'm not sure I had that kind of support There is a an argue, argument to be made that with Canada's women right now, that because of some of the things you've talked about, increased support, role models, exposure, all these kind of things, that a lot more girls have, have, have excelled and that w- we could be in a golden age of female athletics now. Much like, you know, once upon a time back, I guess around a little before when you were competing, but, you know, the golden age of men swimming with Alex Bauman and Victor Davis and that team or the... You know, the even though they had some chemical help, the Ben Johnson, Charlie Francis era track team, or even when you were competing, the Donovan Bailey era track team. I mean, we, we seem to go in, you know, in waves sort of where mm-hmm. you'll have a group that will be great and then we'll move on to the next group of whatever that's great. Is this, is this do you believe, with our women sustainable or is this a top of the mountain that, we, listen, we're great right now and chances are we're going to come down and have some lean years, but then we'll come back again. Is this something we can maintain? I think I think this is, this is um, like you said, four years ago we saw the same thing and has, has, uh, how much has changed over those years. I don't, don't know, but I think, I think we're going in the right direction in that we're, you know, we're getting, in, I'll speak to my sport, at the Ontario level, provincial level, we're, we're, we have more coaches. We have, and if you have more coaches, then you, you, you start to increase your numbers and you have more kids coming into the sport. And then, you know, the development is, the long-term development is there. And so I think that's what we're seeing today. And I think, I think that can continue to grow and get better. Um, again, I'm just looking at the sport of track and field, but I, I mean, it's obvious that there's a, there's a lot of good coaches that are, that are, that are developing talented athletes. One of the really encouraging things, I think, and not just about women, but Canada in general is that for, there was a while there, there was a stretch where we didn't win a ton of medals, but seemingly all the medals that we did win were in brand new sports that nobody else had figured out yet. We did great when synchronized swimming was brand new and Carolyn Waldo and Sylvie Frechette were there and they won. And then the world kind of caught up and we didn't do so. We did great in snowboarding and snow cross. And it, it seems that now we're not just relying on taking advantage of sports where the field doesn't exist and then losing our ground when the world does catch up. We're winning medals in, in big time established events now. It's, it's, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's very encouraging to see, you know, the women, they hadn't won, the women's eight, they hadn't won yes. um, a medal in, I don't know how many years. And, and to see 30, that I think it was. yesterday was, was, was amazing, you know, and, and you know that the work and the years that went into that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, 
you know, if you grow up in a sport, you you want to see it continue and, and flourish and and um, not these one-offs, right? And um, yeah, it's 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 been it's been really fun watching. One more thing, we we're short on time, but one more thing, and this is a this is a, a legitimate question. Although I, you know, I know that people, some people will blanch at me even asking it, but I, I think it's a realistic question. If these rules were reversed, and if, as I said off the top, that we had t- texts and tweets going out saying, "Hey, look, Canada's won eleven medals, and all by men. Where's our women? Where are the women?" I think probably there would be some real angst in this country and some concern that we weren't supporting female athletes and that, you know, there were problems within the foundations. Do we need to do more to support male athletes now? Because clearly they are not quite keeping up with what the women are doing, or is that a ridiculous statement? Well, I mean, uh, I'm talking about our Olympic athletes, not those going into professional sports. Yeah. I mean, I guess you'd have to, you'd have to look, I mean, our, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, if you looked at the, compared men's rugby to women's rugby, I bet you, I don't know if I should say anything, but I bet you the women are probably getting the same support as the men. I would, I would like to know those answers um, before I can, you know, make a decision that we need to support our men more. Or I just think that, um, that uh, um, we need to continue to support what, we're doing well in, you know, and, and maybe, and look at what we need to improve on, but there's nothing wrong with, you know, maybe we say, let's just support women's sport. Cause that seems to be where we're, where we're pretty darn good. I, I, I don't know. There are some men listening right now who just collapsed, <laughs> but I mean, well, I'm a female. I can say that. Yeah, I know. And it's and and I think, you know, if I understand correctly and the 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 whole own the podium and Canadian funding uh, strategy is 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 not exactly out there and put, but I understand that's what they do that they're finding their areas of strength and throwing a lot of support behind that and not spending the money in places where they don't believe they have a chance to to win. And so, yeah, it does become in some ways I guess a self-fulfilling prophecy if we do have the women who are really good and they're stars and they're up and coming and showing promise and showing medals, we'll put more money to continue that, but if you then got other sports that aren't doing well, we're not going to support them, but that seems to then almost ensure that they won't be able to do well in the future. It, it's a it's a tough one when there's not an an unlimited pot of money. It's a tough one to figure out where to spend it. Oh, absolutely. And we could be having a different conversation in four years. But um, like I said, I, I, I think we've, we've got some amazing, talented women athletes in our country. And, and we should be celebrating that. And, and, and hopefully, you know, <clears throat> next weekend we can, we can look and it's a pretty even successful Olympics on the men and women's side. The schedule does tilt a little bit now. Uh, this is how the schedule for the Olympics goes. The, the the events that we are really, really good in with women's sports tend to be, not all, but tend to be near the front. And the sports that our men do better in tend to be at the back. So you're right, Paula. At the, A week from now, we'll revisit this and... Um, who knows what the numbers might look like and if it might be a little more balanced. Uh, listen, always love having you on here. Thanks for taking the time. That's Paula Schnur, who's the head coach at McMaster in cross country and track and also a two-time Olympian. Thanks, Paula. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a report that has just been released by a TD economist about this country's sizzling, and we know this, I mean, nothing new about how hot our housing market has been in this country. So here's my question for you. Before I tell you what the report says, and it's a, it's a, it's a look ahead, it's a, uh, an outlook on the housing market. What do you think that this report would say? Just, I mean, based on what we know, what do you think generally as an outlook for the Canadian housing market, what do you think that this report is going to say? Any ideas? Any guess? What's your best guess? Think about it. You might be a little bit surprised this time. I I was when I read it. Uh, The report is called Canadian Housing Outlook 
coming down the mountain and not coming down the mountain like yeehaw we're coming down the mountain no coming down the mountain as in the prices are going to start coming down this report says things in the canadian housing market are cooling and we should be bracing or celebrating depending on your perspective uh bracing for a correction not just that but that this correction that they're anticipating is actually started and is here earlier than people expected. And it's not the only projection that says this. So the broad question that we have is, if in fact Canadian housing experts and economists and investors and all this believe that the housing market is cooling across this country, are we feeling that here? Because boy, it seems like our housing market is uh, is still pretty, pretty toasty, pretty bubbling. Uh, Rob Golfie, you know Rob Golfie. You see his signs around. You hear him here on 900 CHML uh, on his real estate show. He joins us now. Rob, how are you today? How are you? I'm fantastic. It's the Friday of a long weekend. How can we not be good? It's it's being great. Everybody's happy. Uh, I mean, things are going close to normal, but not quite just yet. But we're almost there. Tiptoeing towards normalcy, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, Rob, I'm reading these reports, and there's a couple of them now that are suggesting that we should be ready for the market to cool off a bit and then to step back a little. Maybe not even not to lose money, but to step back and not be quite so insane. Um, I, I know the commonly held view is that real estate is always a great investment, and it always, in time, goes up in value. But it's inevitable that there's going to be some downturns and some slowdowns along the way, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the markets change week by week and month by month. It's it's, uh, but it, it is one of the best investments anybody can make. But yeah, there there are shifts and changes all the time, especially when things have been as wildly overheated as they have been to this point. I mean, the, the price increases by five and ten percent per quarter. I mean, that's it's unpre- I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it probably is unprecedented. It's 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 got to cool down at some point. It is, and it's and it and, and the gas and, and right now, what's happening is the foot is off the gas pedal and it's just kind of slowly settling. But I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you, it's not as bad as people think it is. Right now, in uh, in in Hamilton, that's including surrounding areas, Stony Creek, Ancaster, Flamborough, and Dundas. I mean, we're only down in unit sales from March of this year versus. Uh, uh, July. Now, I don't have the full numbers of July, but the unit numbers, the number of sales that happened, we're down 54%. But, but listen to this, we're only down 4% in average sale price, which is not that much. It's like, it was definitely way overheated uh, when, when the market uh, was in Mar- like March and April and part of February. So we, we're definitely, it's not, there's no crash. It's just, Hey, listen, that was, it's, it's no different than it was in 2017. It's no different. Actually, this is actually a little better than 2017, just because of the fact 2017 was like a light switch went off. Now, now it's just a slow, gradual kind of cooling, but it's nothing major. The only thing is the, the number of sales are down uh, quite a bit, not the average sale price. Which kind of surprises me. And we'll get to a, both of those things, uh, but first the, the numbers, because this TD report that, that talks about, you know, how things are going to cool off, um, it says that sales have dipped 25% since March across the country. We're double that basically here as far as the numbers of units that are sold. Why is that? Is it just no supply out there or is it people just taking the summer off? Well, it's a combination of both. Uh, you have to understand right now, we were just able to start going to restaurants indoors and outdoors and, and now going to pu- public parks. And so everybody's kind of just, you know, they put their buying of uh, real estate and selling real estate kind of like on the side a little bit, but they're still looking, but, but they're enjoying life. I mean, the one thing that we, we didn't have is the enjoyment of being with people, backyard parties, going to picnics. We are getting that now. Um, but the thing is, um, you know what, like a lot of homes were sold in earlier this year. So a lot of the, uh, uh, people that uh, were looking bought and they bought. So right now the other people that haven't bought yet, they're sitting on the fence and they're, you know, they're taking their time and, and they will eventually buy. It's just, now it's just spread out. We, we actually transitioned from, uh, like earlier this year, we went from 
having a spring market going into a, well, that was last year, a spring market going into a summer market, a combination of two markets. But right now, starting July, it basically is going to a normal market. Because if we look at the numbers of uh, July of this year versus July of 2019, they're very close in sales unit numbers. Now, and then if we go based on uh, unit uh, sales average, we're way up from July 19, 2019 versus now. So, so what I'm saying is the average, uh, the price of homes are still continuously growing, but the unit numbers now we're going back to a normal market and, and it's, uh, it's, it's just been, you know, uh, we're just coming to normality. You know what I mean? Well, we had an, an unnormal market for the last 18 months. Uh, I mean, spring typically is always the busy, everyone in the spring decides it's time to buy a new house or sell their house. I, but I'm wondering with what you just said, people are now, they've been staring at their own house and, and seeing the shortcomings that makes them want to buy a new place for 18 months. They finally get to get out of their house. I'm wondering if we may have a bit of a weird season this year that come winter time when everyone's back in their house and now staring at those same things that made them want to buy a house months ago, if we have a big winter season of suddenly house sales going through the roof. Yeah, I think we're going to go into uh, a better than average fall market going into once uh, August is over with. I think we're going to find that, uh, you know, we're going to, we're more into a normality of life and we're going to find that uh, everybody that's been sitting waiting, they're going to start doing their moves in the fall this year. Right now it's summertime. People are enjoying, enjoying their backyards. They don't want to even think about moving. But once uh, after Labor Day, after Labor Day is uh, done, uh, you're, we're going to start seeing uh, people uh, making serious decisions, uh, either buying or selling. But you're going to see a, a heavy activity starting uh, in September, and that's it. and 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 the fall and that's the fall market, and it's going to be continuously like that. Um, I mean, and I still think uh, the average sale price, uh, the people that bought in uh, March and April, yeah, they probably did pay at a, at a premium at that time. But it's going to catch up and within six months to a year, and then it would be like, hey, I'm glad I did buy when I did buy. So I, I don't think anybody has to worry about that. It's just the average, the unit numbers, the, the amount of unit numbers is less, and we're getting back to the normality of that. Yeah, you also mentioned the price is not dropping, just slowing down. That's what these reports are saying. I mean, we're, we seem to be pretty much, I mean, the numbers may be a little bigger, but we seem to be kind of in lockstep. What they're saying is you're not going to lose value. It's just the speed at which the prices are rising is going to slow way down compared to where it has been. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, you're, so and people are getting scared now because of all the market and everything like that. It, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I'm still buying real estate and I'm, you know, I'm a realtor I, I, and I, and I know the market trends week by week because the, the amount of business that we do, we see the trends. I can tell you when, uh, you know, certain weeks are, are good. Certain weeks are bad, uh, holiday weekends, all that kind of things. I still, uh, an investor of myself is real estate and, uh, and it hasn't stopped me from, uh, even looking at buying real estate myself. These numbers, though, that with us going down in numbers and even with the amount slowing, it, it seems odd around here because for, you know, not just during the pandemic, for, for years now, it seems that this market has been almost impervious to the conditions affecting other markets that we in Toronto and, you know, a couple other places, but especially here in Hamilton, that, that whatever happens around the rest of Canada doesn't matter to us. Our, our, we just keep going in a straight line upwards. Oh, absolutely. Our, our market is just because the, of the uh, uh, demographics were close to Toronto and we were, we're still affordable here in Hamilton. And now with even with the GO train having 250 uh, uh, trains that come and go from uh, Toronto to Hamilton, that's just going to add even a little bit more uh, excitement and value uh, to a certain degree in Hamilton. Uh, but yeah, Hamilton is, uh, is always going to have a strong, strong, uh, real estate, uh, uh, values and just because of the affordability and because of the location we are to, uh, the GTA. You mentioned a second ago, the, you know, people are in the summertime and in their backyard. This has kind of been a pandemic thing. I mean, at least we've heard this has that, that during the pandemic, people have wanted, or at least there's been a move towards the suburbs. Prices in the suburbs have gone up. People want a backyard. People want a little more space. That that one-bedroom condo in the downtown was not quite as appealing as the idea of having some room. 
Now that we're coming out of the pandemic, do you anticipate that flipping backwards and those one bedroom or two bedroom condos in the downtown that maybe weren't quite as appealing for a lot of people are going to take off? Or are we still in a buying in the suburbs with a backyard kind of moment? I, I think we are still, uh, people are still looking at the backyard, wanting some space. Uh, I think the one bedrooms, 500 square foot condo downtown Toronto, um, I don't think the people that had those and left will come back to that um, because they just, it was just too small for them to live and work in if they're, if they're going to be working out of their house. I think uh, developers have to start looking at something maybe a little bigger and affordable uh, for buyers to buy uh, these uh, high-rise condos because nobody wants to be tied up. Like, I mean, now we're our state of mind right now is like, what if this happens again? I don't want to be tied up in a small little house and 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 have to deal with this. Now they now they're prepping for the re- you know for the next two to five years if something like this happens. And they want to make sure they've got space. They don't want to go insane in a small... And if there's two people living in a 400-square-foot home, that's tough. They don't even have enough room to put a desk for each other. They have to work across across from each other at a kitchen table. If, if, if there is a kitchen table big enough to fit two people. So, sure. yeah, things are going to change, definitely. I mean, there are forces still at play, I would think, in this market that are going to keep things from, as you say, from falling apart in any way. And and one of the biggest ones, we keep hearing that the supply of homes for the demand is is way below. Are we? Do we still have a supply shortage? There is going to be a supply shortage, and there will be a bigger supply shortage next year. If if the immigrants come uh, that that have been accepted in the last eighteen months and still waiting for. Uh, the government to open up the borders for them to come, you will see a, a supply shortage even greater next year than it was this year. Because now, like in the last 18 months, we haven't had that many people uh, immigrate to Canada just because of the COVID, but they have been accepting applications and they have been approved to come once COVID is over with. So now we're going to have an abundance of people moving into Canada and they're going to be you know, landing in Toronto or Vancouver airport or wherever. And they're all going to start coming. And, and the immigrants that are coming into this country have money and they're buying, they buy right away. Yeah. And we've, and we've heard uh, in recent weeks to, you know, city hall talks about expanding the, the urban zone that, that Hamilton has grown to grow by two or 300,000 people over the next number of decades. People have to live somewhere. I mean, that's not going to reduce the demand for homes. No, no. And they, and they have to make it a little easier uh, for developers and builders to uh, build these homes. And, 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 and that's what's slowing the process. As long as they make it tougher for the builders and developers, it's going to, they're going to, the government, it's just going to cause the property values go up and up and up. As long as they, uh, if the builders can build fast, they'll, they'll keep a, a, a control of the property values and they won't, you know, skyrocket, uh, uh, right through the roof and, and, and make it unaffordable for first time buyers. So let's go back to that condo idea for a sec, because if we get it, this is the big debate at city hall, city hall right now is do we expand the board, the boundary so that builders and developers can build more homes onto, you know, what has been farmland, or do we say, no, we're going to dent make the downtown and the urban core more dense, if we don't expand, um, you're going to force that. But do people want to buy those condos? If we do expand, yet you're, you know, we lose that farmland. It becomes difficult in a different way. It doesn't sound like there's a win scenario here. But if it doesn't expand, Rob, do those condos that maybe are not the number one choice for a lot of people do they suddenly become much, much, much more valuable? They they do, but they what they need to do is yes, build. Uh, within the urban boundary, like within the inner cities, uh, the condos. But the retired people and first-time buyers, especially millennials right now, they're buying them, right? After that, um, the millennials decide, you know what, I want to go outside. I don't want to, I want a backyard. I want to, you know, I want a bigger place. So they got it. You know what, why, like if the government is trying to, you know, have this big, you know, inner city, like, uh, like pack everybody in so tight, why bring immigrants in? You gotta, you gotta expand. You gotta, you gotta go within 
outside the urban boundary. You just got to keep developing. Hey, listen, this whole country was all land uh, before everybody came and they, and they grew, they grew, they grew. And that's what they plan on doing. Just, you know what, just make it easier. I understand they have to go through formality, but they're making it really tough and expensive for developers, builders. And believe me, I, you know, I, I'm not a developer builder myself I, and I'm not trying to promote them, but if you don't want real estate values to skyrocket through the roof, then you're going to have to increase the demand, the, the supply. And then if the demand's there, then it'll balance out. And you won't see expensive houses out there anymore. I mean, they'll be average. They'll be level out. But, but as long as they, if they keep doing what they're doing, house prices in, in the Hamilton and surrounding area are going to keep going up. And, and, and it's the only way they're going to control it is by you know, making it easier for the builders to build and build more. I'm sure you've thought about this. We got to run, but I'm sure you've thought about this. I mean, you're a guy who, you know, you, you do a lot of real estate work. That's your job. And, and you're one of the biggest, you know, one of the most, one of the people in town who does the most amount of work in this. How high could prices realistically get in this area? I, I mean, you, you, ha- you must have thought about that, about where we could be looking in two or three or four years for an average house price. It, they're going to be, our average price is going to hit pretty high i'd say like the way the route i go and i and i i track this right from 1955 house prices double every 10 years so look at this now if, the, if a person's bought an eight hundred thousand dollar house right now let's say a builder sells eight between eight and nine hundred thousand dollars for a two-story twenty seven six hundred square foot home four bedroom double car garage they paid eight nine hundred thousand for that house can you imagine that house is going to be worth 1.6 to 1.8 million in 10 years a townhouse is going to be worth over a million dollars in less than 10 years. They're already hitting up there, but you can get a townhouse right now for, you know, six, 700,000, but they're going to be at 1.2 million in 10 years, maybe even more than that. The price of that will be even more. 10 years, house prices double. Mark my words on this. You know, it, it, I, I, I recorded everything from 1955 right up until now, and they have doubled every 10 years, regardless what the market has done. You know, for for those who have a house, that's uh, that's great news. For the, for those trying to get into the market, that's terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, oh yeah, those are numbers. Sorry, I just I, I'm I'm stunned trying to imagine a townhouse for a million bucks in Hamilton. I mean, it just it's it's to, it to, if you had told somebody twenty years ago that the townhouse that they bought for hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand, maybe was going to be worth that. You know, there would have been people who had bought up entire blocks and rented them out and said, "Fine, I'll you know, give me 10, 15 years, I'll retire a very wealthy person." But um, who knew? Yeah. Rob Golfy, uh, you can hear him nine a.m. every Saturday morning with the Hamilton Niagara Real Estate Show here on nine hundred CHML. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate this today. Thank you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.